There is none so blind as he who will not see. I thought that quote was from the Bible, but I couldn't find it. I found verses that say something similar, but none that put it in those specific words. A Google search did, however, indicate that Ray Stevens is generally given credit for it because it can be found in his Grammy award-winning Song of the Year for 1970, Everything is Beautiful. But according to the Random House Dictionary of Popular Proverbs and Sayings, there are none so blind as those who will not see, has been traced back to a book of Proverbs by the English poet and playwright John Hayward that was published in 1546. Whoever said it first really doesn't matter because it's certainly true. All too often we are blind to things because we don't want to see them. Our mind is made up, and that which is blatantly obvious is intentionally ignored or simply dismissed. You know, how could anyone see the wonders of creation and not be in awe of the Creator? How could anyone be in the presence of Jesus and fail to see who He is? We may not think it's possible but it happens. And in our text for today, we're going to look at some who were too blind to see, others who were too preoccupied to see, and one who required two touches to see. We begin with some who were too blind to see. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Jesus and the disciples had just returned from eight months in Gentile territory. After feeding the 4,000, they sailed back across the Sea of Galilee to the western shore and landed on Dalmanutha, or as Matthew called it, the region of Magadha. We're not exactly sure where this is, but it was in Galilee, in Jewish country, and it didn't take long for the Pharisees to find Jesus. They immediately began arguing with him and testing him. You know, it had been a while since he had performed any miracles in Galilee, but they knew he had healed multitudes, had miraculously fed them, and even raised the dead. They were there when he cast out demons. They had seen enough to know he was from God, but chose to believe he was from the devil, Beelzebul, because they didn't like him or what he had to say. He didn't play according to their rules. So they told him to show them a miracle, a sign from heaven that would prove he was from God. They challenged him to do something so spectacular that even they would believe in him. But what could that be? You know, God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites, gave them water from a rock, shook the mountain when he gave them the Ten Commandments and split the ground open and swallowed up 250 who rebelled against Moses. But the people still didn't believe God would provide for them or punish disobedience. Still, I'm sure Jesus could have driven the Pharisees 
to their knees with a bolt of lightning. He could have blown them away with a display of power. But what would they have accomplished? After all, he hadn't come to earth to force men into submission. He came to establish a personal relationship with those who would choose to believe in him and who would love him. So no, he wasn't going to play their game. He wasn't going to force anyone to believe in him. But it distressed him that they were so blind that they wouldn't see. He sighed deeply, a different different kind of sigh than he had sighed to communicate with the deaf man. The word used here is found only here in the New Testament. It was an anguished sigh of deep frustration. And he rhetorically asked, why does this generation seek for a sign? According to Matthew, he called it an evil and adulterous generation that sought for a sign. He swore that no sign would be given. Matthew adds, other than the sign of Jonah. The proof of his divinity would be the resurrection, when after three days in the tomb, he would arise like Jonah from the belly of a great fish. But the Jewish leadership would refuse to believe even that. To protect their own self-interest, they would fabricate a story saying his disciples had taken the body, even though they heard directly from the guards who knew what had happened and had actually seen what had happened. You know, nothing, nothing would convince them short of force. And again, Jesus hadn't come to force anyone to bow before him. Not this time. When he comes again, it will be a different story. But for now, he allows those who don't want to see to remain in the dark. So he and his disciples got back in the boat and sailed away from Galilee, never again to publicly ministry there. On the ride across the sea, he tried to open the disciples' eyes to the contagious skepticism of the Pharisees. But they were too preoccupied to see. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand. Apparently, Jesus and the disciples departed Galilee without making preparation for the journey. And after they got out into the sea, the disciples realized that they hadn't packed a lunch. Someone did have a little loaf of barley bread, but that wouldn't be enough for 13 hungry men. 
They were thinking about their predicament. When Jesus said, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, leaven is fermented dough that acts like yeast, causing bread to rise, kind of like the sourdough we used to feed in Tupperware containers in our refrigerators. You know, leaven isn't a bad thing, but it came to symbolize the evil that permeated society. And Jesus was warning the disciples about the influence of the Pharisees and and Herod. He was warning them about the religious hypocrisy and lust for power that blinded the Pharisees to the truth and the pride that kept Herod from repenting. He wanted to make sure they realized why they had left Galilee in such a hurry. But all they could think about was their stomachs. And the mention of leaven only made them hungry for fresh bread. They completely missed the point. And Jesus was very upset. Why are you talking about bread? Don't you see? Don't you understand? Are your hearts that hard? Why are you worried about what you're going to eat? That should have been the least of their worries. Didn't they know who was in the boat with them? Hadn't they seen what he could do? Hadn't they heard what he said about seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting him to provide their physical needs? And the 5,000 were hungry. What did he do and how much was left over? When the 4,000 were hungry, what did he do and how much was left over? Did they think they would starve to death in the presence of the bread of life? Didn't they get it? Didn't they understand who he was? No, they did not. Not yet. You know, we find their lack of faith hard to believe. But in reality, they knew less of him than we know. They were still learning who he was. We've had 2,000 years to understand who he is. But we still get so preoccupied with concerns about our next meal that we forget his power and his promise to meet our needs. We get so concerned about tomorrow that we forget the one who holds tomorrow in his hands. We get so preoccupied with the daily issues of life that we forget to keep our eyes focused on the future God has prepared for us and Christ has secured for us. We are more often than not just as blind as the disciples. And like the blind man, we need at least two touches to see. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I am seeing them like trees walking about. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes. And he looked intently and and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he, Jesus, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. 
When Jesus and the disciples arrived at Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of the sea, back in Gentile lands again, the people recognized him and brought a blind man to him. They asked him to touch him, believing just a touch from the hand of Jesus would give sight to the blind. Jesus took the man by the hand and led him out of the village, apparently hoping to avoid the frenzy that generally followed a public healing. And then, instead of touching him, Jesus spit on the man's eyes. Now, when he healed the deaf man, he spit and touched the man's tongue. And I suggested last week that Jesus may not have actually put saliva on the man's tongue. He may have simply stuck out his tongue, you know, spitting in the process just to let the man see he wanted him to stick out his tongue. But here, there's no question. Jesus spit on his eyes or at least spit on his finger and touched the man's eyes. Saliva was thought to have healing properties. Jesus may have used it to indicate that healing was coming, and he will use it again when making mud to put on the eyes of the man born blind, the one who was told to go and wash his eyes in the pool of Siloam. Whatever his reason, Jesus put spit on the man's eyes and then asked him something very unusual. Do you see anything? Now, Jesus never asked anyone else he healed if they were feeling better, or if they needed help getting up, or if there were any demons left. When he healed someone, that was it. The healing was complete and immediate. So why did he ask, do you see anything? Was he afraid he had failed? Of course not. He was just doing something different. And, as we'll see, for good reason. The man said, I can see, but men look like trees. Apparently, he hadn't been born blind. He knew what men and trees looked like. Jesus then laid his hands on his eyes again, and the man saw everything clearly. Men looked like men and trees like trees. Jesus then sent him home, telling him not to go into the village, still wanting to avoid publicity. The man could now see. But it took a second touch. Why do you suppose Jesus did it that way? Again, was he low on power? I, of course not, of course not. I think he intentionally enabled the man to see in stages to teach us and the disciples something very important. The disciples still didn't realize who Jesus was. Next week, we'll see Peter's eyes open to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, but it will immediately become obvious that his view of the Messiah was, at best, fuzzy. His preconceived ideas about what the Messiah should and shouldn't do wouldn't let him accept what Jesus plainly said was going to happen. He would need a second or third or fourth touch 
to be able to see clearly. But that's not an indictment against Peter. We're all like that. None of us sees everything clearly at first glance, especially when coming out of blindness. It takes time and several touches to be able to see, to be able to understand who Jesus really is and what he expects of us. When our eyes are first opened to the fact that he is the son of God and we accept him as our savior, we can see him. But we better not assume we know all there is to know about him. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we now see Jesus as in a mirror dimly. Someday we will see him face to face and know him fully. Until then, we've got to keep praying for another touch that will enable us to see him better and understand his will for us more clearly. You know, a few of us are like the Pharisees, too blind to see who Jesus is. We've seen enough to know he's the Messiah of promise, the Son of God, God in the flesh, come to save us from our sins. We're not too blind to see that. There are times, however, when, like the disciples, we're too preoccupied with the concerns of life to see that he is with us to remember what he's done in the past and to be confident of his care in our current circumstance. And obviously, the current circumstance we're facing is related to a virus that is spreading around the world. It is frightening, and we do need to take necessary precautions to protect ourselves and others. That's why you were at home watching this instead of being here in worship with your brothers and sisters. But viruses and even plagues are nothing God hasn't dealt with before. He's even used them to accomplish his purposes. You may recall that Pharaoh chose to be blind to what God was doing because he didn't like it and didn't want to see it. His hardened heart refused to yield to what God had made perfectly clear to those with eyes to see, and it took the heavy hand of God and the final plague to open his eyes. Now, it is true that once Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened it further to make certain all could see his power over the gods of Egypt. But things may have turned out differently for the entire nation if he had responded positively to the second or third touch rather than waiting for the final hammering blow. Now, God, in his grace, often gives us the opportunity to respond to a second touch. And we all need those second touches that bring Jesus and his will for us more and more into focus. When things are fuzzy and Jesus asks if we can see, be honest. Admit that you can see something, but it's, it's not clear. 
You know, if the blind man had said, yes, I can see, after the first touch, he would have gone through the rest of his life with men looking like trees walking about. Jesus doesn't want us going through life half blind. Now, it's true. We're not going to understand everything until he returns. But Paul did promise us that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And God has made it possible for us to see with clarity into the future. We do know how the story will end. He's also made it clear that he will guide us through life and will provide for our needs if we will just keep in touch with him. May he touch us again if we still can't see that. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in a time of mass confusion and questioning and doubt. We don't really know what tomorrow is going to bring, but we know you are in control. And you've promised us not to worry about tomorrow, but simply deal with your power and the wisdom of your spirit provides for the struggles of the day. I pray for our church. I pray for the body that was unable to meet together this morning. I pray that wherever we are, isolated perhaps in our homes, we understand the connection we have. We're connected through the blood of Jesus into a body that's amazing and beautiful and full of promise and hope. Guide us, Father, as we deal with the circumstances we face. And when we don't understand how you're at work, just touch us again with reminders that you know where it's all going to end. We have faith in you. We have confidence in you. We ask you to bless our efforts to to maintain and even increase our faith as we struggle together through the one who has promised to walk with us through the shadows of life without fear, knowing you protect us, you provide for us, you provide places of rest and refreshment and the promise of a beautiful tomorrow. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.